0: Grant, O oh merciful God, that I may ardently desire, prudently examine, truthfully acknowledge, and perfectly accomplish what is pleasing to thee for the praise and glory of thy name. Amen. In the, name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So you see at the top of that, that this is a prayer of St. Thomas Aquinas, uh, his prayer for a well-ordered life. And so I thought it was kind of a nice prayer to begin with this week. And I gave it to you so you can stick it in your prayer book Mm -hmm. and pray. I gave you the Latin there just to prove you how much of a nerd I am. Uh, Also, it's the language that St. Thomas would have written it in. And it's interesting is that St. Thomas wrote lots of prayers, actually, and lots of liturgical texts. So like the Feast of Corpus Christi, he composed a lot of those texts, taking things from Scripture and the tradition. But, um, But he was certainly one who would compose these things, the Adorote Devote, the Tantum Ergo, these sorts of things that are kind of part of Catholic life. Uh, are compositions by St. Thomas and also shows that he wasn't just some like egghead writing big books in his office He was also a sort of poet kind of charismatic. This is like 13th century praise and worship music, you know Uh, The Tantumergo and so um, to kind of get into his genius You have to kind of see all those things. You can't just read the summa and think you know St. Thomas You have to kind of get the whole thing here So if you're interested in this stuff, you have to kind of do it all that way Also, I thought this prayer kind of sums up a lot of the work I think we want to try and do this weekend, the sorts of things we want to get at this weekend. That is, if we're going to talk about choosing well, if we're going to talk about the virtue of prudence, and particularly if this thing's being run by the vocations office, um, that prudence is not just kind of like what kinds of stuff you're going to buy at CVS, right? Uh, Which we'll talk about in a bit, Uh, but uh, it also has to do with like how you're going to live your life and how you're going to live your life in Christ, and how you're going to live, you know, kind of the big decisions of your life, especially kind of the mode of life you're going to live, and how you're going to do that. And so to do that kind of in the presence of God as Catholics and as people who are interested in St. Thomas, I thought this was a a helpful prayer. And of course, it's maybe unsurprising, it kind of gives this nice little delineation of the virtues you need to do this well, right? Um, And something that's going to come up a little later, just to notice that he says, so you're you're praying to God, so grant, O merciful God. And anytime St. Thomas uses kind of a a title about God, there's something kind of being revealed there, that we're asking for God for a, a sort of a mercy, for a, a grace from him. Because you could say, you know, grant, O omnipotent God, all-powerful God, or grant, you know, eternal God. And it would kind of be pointing to those things, but it's like, grant, oh, merciful God. The merciful God is the one who gives us something, grants us something, forgives us of something, maybe, you know. And then it says that I may do these four things that I can ardently desire, prudently examine, truthfully acknowledge, and perfectly accomplish what is pleasing to thee, and so on. Just notice there that you've kind of got both the intellect and the will wrapped up in this prayer, right? So you begin with kind of the will, that kind of base desire, to ardently desire the things that are pleasing to thee for the praise and glory of thy name. And then ultimately, I want to perfectly accomplish these things. This is kind of going to be two of the things that the will does. We're going to talk a lot about that this weekend. Um, but then in the middle there, the will uh, is always kind of directed by the intellect here. And so the prudently examine, so to kind of look out at the world and kind of notice what's there and to prudently set it in order. Um, and then to truthfully acknowledge that I, I'm not just kind of knowing all the stuff out there, but that I can actually zero in on what the truth is and what the truth is for me in my own particular situation and then act on that. That's what this prayer is all about. And so I want to speak to uh, a number of those points, but I think our other speakers will speak to those things too. But I think the biggest thing here is that uh, in talking about prudence, talking about choosing well, uh, we certainly want this to um, you know, characterize everything that we do in our life, even the little decisions of our day when we become more prudent people, um, uh, but also obviously in kind of the big decisions of our life. But all of this is done in the presence of God and asking for his grace to influence and move our mind and move our hearts in very particular ways this way. And I'm going to start there because the first point I want to make is a bit about freedom, Uh, in a retreat entitled Choosing Well, I thought it'd be profitable to speak uh, about freedom, especially because we live in a world where I think the world has this so fundamentally wrong. This is not something you've not heard before. Um, Because when the modern world speaks about freedom, it usually means something like um, the more unencumbered choices I can make, the freer I am. The more choices I have at my disposal, such that I can sit back and choose whatever I think the best, the better. The less I have anyone influencing me in my choice, the better. And I think this is typically what we mean by freedom in, in the modern world. And I think this reveals a certain vision of the human person. That is, the human person is at best, uh, whenever it's an autonomous agent in the world, and again, at its best, it's able to go about whatever it wants to do without any limitation, without any sort of inhibition, either on my own part or coming in from somewhere else. Someone's holding the elevator open over there. Um, yeah, get after that, please. Think. Uh, yeah, obviously. And I think most people today would also kind of include a notion of, you know, that this is what it means to be free is to have as many choices as I can and to have as little influence on me making that choice that I can be as free as I, as I wanna be in that moment. Also, being able to do what I want to do, when I want to do it, as long as it doesn't hurt anyone else, as long as it doesn't limit someone else's freedom, you know, uh, or that someone else, that my freedom doesn't somehow influence your freedom. And so we're all these sort of autonomous bubbles, just making sure not to break each other's bubble as we go about our day and our life so that we don't impinge on each other that way. And I always think the problem with this mindset is when we have to go buy toothpaste at CVS, you know, Um, so you know you go to the CVS and you go to the toothpaste aisle and there's the myriad you know bottles or bottles not tubes of toothpaste there Uh, so we put our mask on we go to the store and we kind of stand in front of the toothpaste there's enamel protection there's whitening there's extra fluoride you know um, and no one except advertisers are kind of influencing us here and we're numb with choice we don't know what to do right But this is what the world tells us that is what freedom is about, right? It's having all these choices. No one's telling me what to do. I'm free right now, but I don't really feel free. I've got all sorts of options, but I'm not free. That is, shopping isn't freedom. If you want to write something down and put it on your fridge later, shopping, Father Austin said, shopping's not freedom. All right. Um, And so I think we can think about freedom a little differently this way. Uh, And I think this is where the Christian can step in and say, hey, there's a little more to freedom than buying toothpaste at CVS, you know. Uh, because we don't think that human beings are disconnected automata, which is the plural of automaton, right? Uh, with minds that are just sort of tabula rasa, right? That are just kind of blank slates. And the more knowledge, the more power I've got. Wills that are just kind of open so that I can, you know, uh, so that I can just choose and do whatever I want without any, anyone telling me what I want to do. We don't think that. Uh, we think that we're created certainly with the capacity to know. That's what the intellect is. Uh, and to choose, this is what the will is. But that these faculties have, what we would say in kind of philosophy and theology, they have their proper objects. That is, the things that will make me as a person better for having known it, make me better for having chosen it. You know. And there's also things that, for having known them or chosen them, make me worse. This is what the world, the modern world, doesn't really want us to think, doesn't really want us to kind of uh, to say, because then you have to start making value judgments about what's true, and about what's good. And we live in a world that we don't really want to do this, you know? Um, but for the Christian, you know, the mind and the heart, they're not they are not just made to know and love whatever we might like, but there are things that make us better or worse human beings for knowing them and having them in our mind. There's things that make us better or worse for having chosen or loved them. And we believe that the mind is made for truth, and that the heart, the will is made for the good. And when we know true things, we're made better. When we, know, when we choose good things, we're made better. But the opposite is true as well, of course. And as Christians, we believe that ultimately the mind and the heart are not just made for knowing and loving any old thing, any old kind of true or good thing, um, but ultimately they're made for the one who created them the one who created them for union with himself, ultimately, who just is truth and who just is goodness. And it's not just only the perfection of those faculties that we have, right? We talk about intellect and will as these faculties, these things in us that do things. Um, But it's not just as if God is kind of is the perfect actualization of who I am as a human person, but we actually think that God creates us to be elevated above and beyond what he even created us to be in their own inner intelligibility we would say what they could kind of do on their own all right because we think that he's created us to actually share his own life the creator of the universe creates us to 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 share in his own life to know the things that he knows to choose and love the things that he loves but i think it's only clear this is only clear uh when we see how we were created in the beginning. So, let's go back to the beginning, all right? Let's go to the book of Genesis, uh, and just think about, you know, in creating the universe, God sets up all things in relation to himself, because how could it be otherwise, right? In the beginning, there wasn't anything else but God, right? And so, anything that is created by him is going to have a particular relation to him. And first and foremost, all things relate to God as their creator, the one who causes all things to exist and remain in existence. And Nothing can exist if God didn't first create it and keep it in being at all times. Just like the violinist, you know, whose note only sounds as long as he or she is pulling the bow over the string, right? I mean, there's a little resonance, but violins are small, so there's not much time for it to kind of vibrate through there. Uh, you really need the bow kind of going there the whole time. And in creating things, um, in creating all things, God desires that they participate in his goodness, first insofar as they exist at all. Just the mere fact of existence is good. And when you don't know what to pray for, and you sit down in the chapel and everything's going wrong, you're like, God, I thank you that I exist. Because we don't have to. He could just stop thinking about you, and poof, there you go. It's over. you know. Um, and so the, the mere fact that we exist, that the world exists, that creation exists at all, uh, is a manifestation of his grandeur. There's that great poem by Gerard Manley Hopkins. He's a Jesuit, but he does have this great poetry that he wrote. <laughs> and, you know, where he says, you know, the world is charged with the grandeur of God. It flames out like shining from shook foil. It gathers to a greatness like the ooze of oil crushed. You know, this great, uh, just this sense that the mere, the mere being of things uh, kind of radiates that grandeur of God. And it's from the mere fact of him exist- uh, putting it into existence, creating it, keeping it in existence, you know. And so when we look at things that exist out there in the world, there's a sort of philosophical principle that says that any effect bears the imprint of its cause. So think about like a board that's in two pieces. If it's really neatly cut, you can kind of look at it and go, oh, that was a saw that did that, right? And so the, the cause has some sort of mark on the effect, as opposed to like the karate chop, right? That's going to look very different, right? That way. Right? Um, Uh, And so anytime we look at something, we can say, ah, I know something about what made this come to be just by looking at it that way. Uh, Even the rock in the park, you know, bears the maker's mark, you know, Uh, which is a bourbon reference. Um, And in fact, it fulfills the rock, just fulfills its purpose totally and completely by being there in the park. By having weight, so kind of obeying gravity, if you want to think about it that way. Uh, When it's sat upon, you know, it's fulfilling its purpose. It has a particular shape, has a particular kind of set of properties, and it's doing what God created it to do by being sat upon or by giving shade to the little squirrel that's kind of sitting behind it. It's perfectly doing what God kind of created it to be. And so there's something about even God's creative act that we see even in those little mundane uh, properties there. And all of creation works this way. It all bears the mark of its maker, and that mark points it towards a particular trajectory. Uh, the rock has a trajectory to be sat upon, or to give shade, or just to kind of be there and be weighty, you know. But it has a goal, it has an end, it has a purpose that it does that. And all things do this. Rocks, ferns, squirrels, everything uh, contains within itself both this impress of God's work and a direction by which it will flourish and complete whatever God has created it for. And it's a good rock, fern, or squirrel insofar as it does that. Are we with Every once in a while, you want to nod just at the profundity of these things, it'd be helpful to me. All right, there you go. All right. But then when we look at the human being, this is no less true, though. This is also uh, uh, something we can say about uh, human nature. Uh, so, again, in the book of Genesis, God looks at all creation and says at the end of each day of creation that this, you know, this is good, whatever he's done that day. And it's not because he's learning something. But it's because he's seeing it with reference to his own goodness and glory. And then it participates in his goodness and glory. And then he makes it good. In fact, when God speaks, any word that he speaks is creative. So he's always doing something. God doesn't notice anything. He makes things happen when he speaks. Yeah. Um, and when he looks at man, that is, at the human being, he says that it's very good. And why? Why? because he's created man not just with the impress of his being, and not just with some way of participating in the goodness of the created universe with a certain trajectory to it, but he's created man in his image and his likeness, it says. And these terms are really important, actually. The tradition of the church has interpreted these two terms, image and likeness, in different ways. And one of the best ways, I think, is to see that image relates or refers to the way that human beings bear the image of their maker. There's something about the cause of humanity uh, that we see just in the very constitution of humanity, you know. Uh, God, though, is pure spirit, so we know it's not in our embodiment that we're in his image and likeness in particular, but we know that he knows and that he loves, that is, that he has a mind and he has a will, or that he just is his mind and is his will. And our way of imaging God as human beings is that even though we're embodied, we nevertheless also have minds and wills that are not the same as God's, but they reflect what it is God, it is and is in very self. There's just something about what we do that somehow, again, in theology, we talk about a sort of analogy here. And this is why God chooses to reveal himself, not merely through the act of creation, right? There's something... Um, you know, even the, the creatures can't sit and think, but the squirrel, you know, um, just by the very fact of existing, we know that, that thing, he had to come from somewhere. You know, mom and dad squirrel, but then you keep on going back, and there has to, you know, it, it came from somewhere. It didn't just come from nothing, you know. But that when dealing with a human being, God's going to communicate himself in ways that are adapted to our minds and our wills. These things that we have, these ways that we image him. And again, an analogous, but a much greater, deeper way in the way that God kind of reveals himself through created things. Are you with me so far? Yeah, good. So uh, when the tradition, that's how the tradition kind of talks about image then. When the tradition talks about likeness, we're like God in that we have built into us by God's creation the capacity to imitate him to exercise those faculties of mind and will so that we can know and love the things that God knows and loves. Another way of speaking about this is that God has made us capable of living the virtuous life, or morally. And I think it's important to make this point just because so often we can think of Christian life as like a set of rules. I know it's a mystic institute, people don't talk like this, but there are other people who think Christians think like this, all right? Um, And that Christian rules are like really good rules. They kind of help society. It's a patrimony of Western civilization, whatever. And that in order to be a good Christian, you have to follow the rules. And when we break the rules, this is what we call sin. And the solution to sin is to just start obeying the rules again. Try harder. But when we think about what God's created us for, namely union with him, by participation in his life and being made in his likeness is this kind of vocation to live with him and to imitate with him. This is what the fathers of the church interpret that line in Genesis where it talks about Adam and Eve walking in the cool of the evening with God. Is that, you know, in the Jewish mentality, walking was kind of this global term for all of life, the halakha, right? And uh, and so when Adam and Eve do that, they're already kind of responding in some kind of protological way to that vocation to imitate God. You know, we already see that. Um, And whenever we say that that's our vocation, and we come to do that by knowing and loving the things that God knows and loves, then virtue, morality, goodness, all these things take on a deeper significance. It's not just whether you happen to be a Christian who happens to like the Christian rules, and so you follow the Christian rules. But it's that there's this deep vocation that's actually just built into me, Uh, and that I've decided to try and allow my life to be conformed to that. And that's what we're talking about here. And so sin is no longer the breaking of rules that are more or less arbitrary, in the eyes of the world, for that matter. Uh, But it's the greater or lesser failure to do that for which we were created. And so to tie this back to freedom, then, when we have that sort of anthropology put together, that understanding of human nature, when we talk about freedom, then, We're more or less free insofar as we're able to know the truth, to know the one who is true, and to do the good. That is to choose and love the one who is goodness itself. That's what real Christian freedom is. It's walking into the CVS with your mask on, grabbing the toothpaste, checking out, and leaving, right? Because I know what I need, I go and get it, and I'm done, you know? So if you just kind of bump that up metaphysically, that's divine life, okay? (laughs) And so under this Christian notion of what the will is for, then, we can see more distinctly what the difference is between it and the modern notion. So just to kind of elaborate this a little more. The will is not some autonomous faculty by which every mature person tries to have as limitless and uninhibited a choice as possible in any particular moment, but rather the will has its proper object. There are things that make the human being more what he or she is when they choose that thing. And there are things that make them less so when they don't choose them or they choose lesser things. And the big problem here, of course, is that the will, our faculty of choosing, only has one object. Goodness. We only ever choose things insofar as we see them as good. Aristotle knew this, right? This is 500 years before Jesus, right? He just saw that anytime I choose something... The will only chooses something insofar as it sees it as good. I mean, even to take a really extreme example, uh, which is problematic in its own way, but hopefully will illustrate, even like the drug addict, right? When he or she chooses once again to get high, you know, he or she can see that this isn't good for them on some level, but they still choose to do it because there's some good in mind. There's the pleasure of it. There's kind of avoidance of the pain of not doing it in this moment, you know? So anytime that we choose something, we're always choosing it insofar as it seems good to us, at least in some, in some aspect. And the real problem that is mixed up here is that we no longer live in the pristine state in which God created us. We're no longer walking in the cool of the evening, right? Because there's what happens after that, right? There's the, uh, the disobedience of man against God. We don't feel in our bones because of original sin and because of our actual sins. We don't feel in our bones any longer the call to union with God in our minds and our hearts. We seek, we seek out things that are not God and even things that are bad for us, but we think of them as true and good. And this is what St. Thomas means when he talks about the distinction between true and apparent goods. Because again, St. Thomas, of course, also says that the will just, uh, it's just what the will does. It just chooses things that it sees as good. But the problem is that we look out at things and we see some aspect of goodness in it and think, oh, that must be the good. And we go not understanding what kind of uh, what suffering or other things that's going to bring us somehow. There are things that we choose that are actually bad for us, but we choose them either because they seem good to us under some aspect or their goodness is so far inferior to the goods that we should choose that they end up being not very good for us at all. I think a way of kind of pointing towards this, there's this great quotation that's kind of floating out in Catholic blog land um, and kind of Catholic literary circles and this sort of thing. It's attributed to G.K. Chesterton. It says, the man knocking at the door of the brothel is actually seeking God. Have you heard about this before? You've heard this. G.K. Chesterton did not write any such thing. All right. (laughs) Just to be really clear. That actually comes from a novel that came out in 1945 by a Scottish writer named Bruce Marshall, which is kind of awkward because Bruce Marshall's a good friend of the Smithic Institute, a theologian down at SMU. Uh, not the same person though. Uh, and he wrote this book called The World, The Flesh and Father Smith. And, uh, and the protagonist there towards the end of the book, he's kind of making, um, uh, it's kind of a Father Brown figure actually. So he's clearly you know not dissimilar, uh, but he says this. He says, I still prefer to believe that sex is a substitute for religion. And that the young man who rings the bell at the brothel is unconsciously looking for God. All right, so that's not Chesterton. He did not say that. Uh, But it is the sort of thing he would have said. I'm sure he wishes he would have said it, you know. Uh, And it's a really, again, it's a really kind of stark example, uh, and that this is going over the inner tubes. It's a little nerve-wracking. But just to say, any time that we're choosing something, we're choosing it under the aspect of goodness somehow. And this desire for goodness, though, has only one proper object, ultimately, which is the one who is goodness itself. And so the prospect of the Christian life, particularly the Christian life after original sin, is that how do we allow our minds and hearts to get back to seeking the one who is true, the one who is good. And so this is one of the reasons that God reveals himself to humanity in the first place. In speaking to Israel through the prophets, the patriarchs, giving the Ten Commandments, He reveals to man what was implanted in his heart from the beginning, but which is obscured by sin, obscured by a continual choice of things that are less than God, less than what is truly good for us. And then the revelation of God in Christ is the capstone and fulfillment of this revelation, where we see a human being who is united to God in his very being. That's what we mean when we speak about the hypostatic union. All right, all we mean is that there is one person, the divine son, who exists as God from all eternity, but in a particular moment in time, unites himself to our human nature, and there's just one Christ. And he lives out a human life in our nature, what it is God intends our humanity to look like. But the example that Christ gives us is not just someone who perfectly followed the rules. What a weird kind of Christ that is, right? It's a sort of conscient Christ, I guess. Um, And he's the one, you know, Christ is the one whose mind and heart were so united to God, hypostatically united to him, that everything he did and said and suffered had one object, God himself. And you see this in the Gospels. He's talking to the Father. Everything he does, his eyes are always on the Father. And he reveals in his life that to know the truth and to do the good is the purpose of our nature. And that with his grace... We can remove whatever obstacles stand in our way to knowing and loving him properly. And this is what Vatican II means when it says that Christ reveals humanity to itself. Because his humanity is a redeemed humanity just by the mere fact of being united to God, utterly united to God in his knowing and his loving. And what he does by this natural union that he has with God, we do in the graces of faith, hope, and charity those theological virtues whereby we don't just obey God in faith, follow his rules, but we're united in our minds to him. We don't just do the things in charity that you're supposed to do as a good Christian, but where our, our hearts are united to him and we love in our human hearts with the love that God loves from all eternity, infinitely. And so just to conclude here, because I've certainly gone on, um, if we're to choose, if we're going to choose well, We need first to understand what our minds and wills are for. So that's the title of the talk, right? The good and our propensity for it. We have to understand what our minds and wills are for or better, whom they are made for. For whom they are made, I should say. And when we've set our hearts on him, we can begin to allow our minds and hearts to be purified so that actually every little decision, what toothpaste we're buying, What I'm going to do with my Saturday, what I'm going to do with my life, comes to define who I am before God. St. Therese has that great thing. I can pick up the pen for the love of God. St. Augustine has that great part in Book 10 of the the City of God, right? That for the Christian, if our heart is set on God, any little thing becomes an act of worship, becomes an act of sacrifice, right? And this isn't just kind of pious mumbo-jumbo. It means that I can get out of bed for the love of God which I try to do every day, you know, more or less successfully. Um, and, uh, and so I think the particular reason that we're talking about these things this weekend is, you know, obviously under the auspices in some way of discerning our vocation in Christ. But discernment is not our feeble attempt to read the mind of God. A lot of Catholics kind of think about discernment as if it were some sort of like shell game, right? The sort of celestial shell game. God's got his will and he's put it under one of these shells. <laughs> and he's kind of mixing it up and the Christian life is all about you what coming to judgment and saying that one you know and it's like oh you missed your vocation And it's like what a weird God this is you know Um, but discernment I think in the true sense of that term is a process by where whereby we allow ourselves to be conformed to the will of God Choosing those things that are truly good for us, that he's objectively revealed to us. This is the commandment. This is the moral life of the church. This is what God has given us objectively so that it trains our heart to make subjective judgments about what he wants for my life right here and right now. And so when we're thinking about kind of the discernment of different lives to kind of live in Christ, different vocations that we might be called to... Uh, it's not just about doing whatever is hardest, whatever would be the most difficult thing to do, and that would be better. That's a weird kind of Ignatian thing that's seeped into um, kind of a weird Jesuit thing that seeped into uh, Catholic spirituality um, because what needs to happen is a distinction. You always need a good distinction, right? Uh, and so anytime you're thinking about the discernment of, say, religious life, priesthood, married life, these sorts of things, uh, this is not a discernment of, like, what's going to be the hardest, I'm going to go do that how do I kind of deny my will the most and go do that? It's such a weird thing to think, but lots of people think this way. Um, What we need to do is to distinguish between an objective and a subjective attraction to certain kinds of goods. Because ultimately, when we've allowed the Lord to purify our hearts and our minds, when we try to join our hearts and our minds over to respond to that basic call that he's created us in, and then in grace has um, re-enlivened that and actually elevated that in some way, and the choice about how we're going to live that out, which is what a vocation is. A vocation is just the deepening of the call to holiness that he has given us in our baptism. It's nothing more than that. It's how am I going to live that out? What's the, what's the prudential choice I'm going to make about my life in order to live out that call that he's given to me? And some people are going to be, within their heart, really drawn to priesthood or religious life. Every single human person is called to marriage. Right? Did you know that? Uh, You all looked up when I just said that. Uh, Every single human being is called to marriage. I mean, our bodies are built for it. Our psychology is built for it. Our emotional life is built for it. Some people, God puts this desire in their heart to renounce that good, to renounce the goods of marriage and family life for the sake of the kingdom, to live out... That call to holiness that we've all experienced in our baptism and some people he's not given it to you know it's actually a weird thing to be called to these things right uh to be to want to kind of renounce like the really good things the most natural thing in the world and to say i want to wear you know kind of weird white clothes and live in this kind of weird building with these weirdos you know um, <laughs> it's a weird thing unless you believe in god and the kingdom that's like ah now i see where this is going here and so anytime i'm looking at these things and trying to make a choice about that um, I need to be able to see the objective goodness in these things. Any Catholic, in kind of thinking about their discernment and thinking about their vocation, should be able to look at, say, priesthood or religious life, these different kind of forms of consecration, and say, "This is good. This is very good. God is here. These people are seeking God with all of their life. Anyone should be able to do that." The question then is: Is God calling me subjectively to do this thing? Has He put this objective or this subjective desire? Into my heart. And you can go to heaven if you say no. That's okay, because God doesn't call everyone to it. But you still have to be able to see that it's, it's good. It's made by God, and it's for the kingdom. So, too, for the priests and, and the religious, we have to be able to look at married life and say, this is a very good thing. And actually, something in me really desires this thing, but I feel like God has called me to renounce that. It's not just that I couldn't get a date, so well. Here, I'll just go do this instead, you know. Uh, We don't want priests like that, actually. Um, uh, And so what you want to be able to do is make that distinction, not just what's hardest, but you have these real goods out there. And so the first step is really desiring them and seeing them in God. And then it's asking, and I think people are going to talk about this later, uh, what does it mean then? What does it look like? What does it look like in my heart? What are the kind of signs in my life that would tell me, no, actually the Lord wants this for you and is presenting this to you. And he's waiting for you to choose it. Because he's put this, he's, he's desired this from all eternity in a sense. That's not untrue. But he's going to present this to you so that you can choose well. So that you can see this good, that there's something in you that's drawn toward it. And so that you can choose it well. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit.